welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Hosting as always, my name's Dan and I'm back after being on international duty last weekend uh, and I'm joined this evening by Cam. Hello. And Paul. We know you weren't on international duty, Dan. You hate international duty. Well, I, I did try and instigate a coup in Guinea to stop a game from happening, so you've got to give me some credit. Um, th- thank you both very much for, for taking over from me last week. It's appreciated. Um, I think you did really well, gents. Well done. Um, perhaps uh, you, you might want to rotate me out more often than you do. <laughs> right. No, no, no. No, we, we let you off for moving house, Dan, but you don't get a pass every other week. <laughs> no, my exactly. ever present, my ever present record is now gone. However, um, whilst that, that there may be chaos in, in in Guinea, it doesn't sound like anything like as much chaos as there was in Brazil, as um, Brazil and Argentina can't have a normal game of football. There has to be some drama somewhere, uh, and this I, I, I don't recall any situation in the past where people have marched onto the pitch to do something about it. But uh, that's what happened. And international football just does not go well at the moment with COVID, I'm afraid. No, it, it, it doesn't, Dan. I mean, we've spoken about it so many times now <laughs> um, and we, we keep coming back to it because it seems every time there's either, you know, European travel or, or sort of global travel, there's there's some sort of story or incident or whatever. Um, you know, there was the incident you've just referenced in in. Uh, Brazil with with the Argentina players um, and obviously that has a direct impact on on two Premier League clubs um, I believe there was two players each from from Villa and Spurs um, so they're obviously caught up in the in the fallout from that um, so it, it's a messy situation at the moment it doesn't help of course in that example with it being two countries that you know are not exactly and particularly in a footballing sense are not on never been on the friendliest terms have they and you know Argentina I think won the Copper America in Brazil, didn't they, um, in the summer? Uh, so there's, you know, tensions are, are high. So I think there's a lot of, you know, sort of questions around. Was that just done as a bit of a stunt to sort of embarrass Argentina? Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure there'll be more details coming out in, in the next few days around that one, as the uh, the authorities over there try and uh, try and get to grips with what what what's gone on and and whether that game presumably will will have to get played again at some point as well which is you know further disruption and players crossing over the Atlantic which is not really in anyone's best interest at the moment but you know as we said I think a couple of weeks ago you know we everyone's aware of the current situation and it it feels like football's kind of taken that stance of we're just going to try and ignore it where possible um and unfortunately, incidents like this are, are going to happen while that's the approach being taken, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree with quite a lot of what Collins just said, Dan. I think um, I haven't sort of read a lot about what happened uh, last night. I haven't sort of delved into it. I haven't had time to today. But I've seen the pictures, obviously, and, and saw the news reports yesterday. I think the the interesting thing from, from my perspective is... I have some sympathy with the Brazilian authorities. Uh, the points that we've made previously about the sort of nature of the decision to allow football to just carry on as though as though this global pandemic wasn't happening—you've um, got to question some of that. So I, I have some sympathy with the Brazilian authorities uh, in the sense that they're saying, "Look, just because you're football players doesn't mean you get to flout the rules." You've come in from the UK, which is a country on our red list or whatever their equivalent is uh, and therefore you should follow the rules 
where I also agree with what Collins just said is it feels to me like the way it was done was a bit of a stunt. You are not telling me that the first time the Brazilian authorities became aware that those four Argentinian players were in the country was when the game kicked off. Like, they must have been in the country for, if not days, then at least a good number of hours. They've obviously found access into the country in some manner, whether it's over a land border, whether it's in the air. The fact that those players have come into the country would have been known to the Brazilian authorities before the game kicked off. I think the way that they entered, let the game start and then entered the field of play in this big dramatic sort of um, statement, if you like, was intended, at least in part, to kind of embarrass Argentina and to make a statement that may have been about politics and not football. Um, I mean, it may have been linked to what happened in the Copper, I suspect not. I suspect that's a political thing rather than a, a football thing. There may be some politics between the two national associations going on, but I think this is more than, um, you know, just Brazilian football doesn't like Argentinian football. I think there's probably something larger at play. Um, you know, the, the, I don't want to make this a political podcast, but there are certain views within the government of Brazil on, on COVID that are not in line with maybe what you'd say is a consensus worldwide. Um, and so I think the way it was done um, was about more than just, oh my God, we've suddenly realised there are four footballers here who've come in breaking the rules. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a fair a fair point. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. Like they obviously will have cleared border patrol or whatever, you know, whatever the equivalent is in Brazil. You know, at some point, right, hours or, or as you say, days before yeah. the game. So yeah. there's definitely an element of a of a stunt. Whether it's, it's just grandstanding, you know, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it feels like it. Um, and of course, I think you know the, all those countries are on our red list now as well. Um, so it, it's a bit of a a bit of a mess on, on both sides really which does sort of beg the question you know like we were sort of saying should, should any of this been happening to start with right um, what you know in a normal situation you know you, you probably wouldn't get someone travelling from you know a sort of red list to red list um, because that's the whole reason the red lists exist um, yeah <laughs> and I think this is different than the situation last autumn because last autumn it felt like the whole world was on a kind of similar trajectory with the first wave of the virus at that point and probably we passed peaks but everyone was starting to look as though they were moving towards a second peak what's different about this summit is the pace at which the delta variant hit countries has been quite different so you know you see the the scenes in australia in the last few weeks um if you think back to the uk we had our sort of peak of delta variant a couple of months ago and and Sort of, I know we've had a sort of another mini peak, and, and that may well be the pattern going forward. But it feels now as though moving between borders is even more tricky to navigate, especially moving between continents, because um, the virus is at different points in its transmission in those in those countries. We're going to have this kind of disruption for um, a while now. What one thing that's interesting me. Um, we all agree that World Cup 2022 is going to be a complete fiasco, but that is going to be in, what, November or December, which you could argue is peak COVID 2022 season. Yeah, and, and it'll be interesting, Dan, won't it, to see you know how we get through this winter and what that looks like across the world and the fact that we've got you know masses of the population's 
at least in a lot of these countries, uh, vaccinated, albeit I'm not sure what the vaccination rate is in Brazil and I'm not sure what the vaccination rate is in the country where we're playing the World Cup in, uh, you know, 15, 16 months' time, whatever it is. Um, but as much as it would be lovely to be able to come and talk on this podcast just about football and not have to keep talking about COVID and the situation the world is in, um, there's context, isn't there, to everything that we talk about at the moment, whether it's the disruption it's caused to seasons and pre-seasons, whether it's about not having fans or having fans, um, or whether it's about the situation that we've seen this weekend. Yeah, I think what's what's certain is that FIFA will move heaven and earth to make sure that it uh, that it goes ahead. Um, Regard, it would take, I think, some you'd imagine at least anyway, it would, it would take a few of the big boys to have to pull out or to yeah. refuse to go for, for, for FIFA to reconsider. Um, and that's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> no, not not with the amount of money in the in the, the game and the, the, I, the, the World Cup in particular. I think we almost have to be in a we'd have to be in a worse situation than we were in that first wave last spring, wouldn't we? Where where things like the Olympics and the Euros were postponed a year. I think the difference then was there was a lot more we didn't know about the virus, uh, so it felt safer to a lot of governing bodies to postpone. I suspect you're right, Khan, that with the knowledge that we have now of this of this thing that we're facing and the fact that we do have to as a society move to a point where we can start to acknowledge it's never going to go away and we've just got to be better at finding a way to live with it and manage it in our populations um, it would be a huge shock at this point if FIFA were to even countenance not holding the World Cup yeah, yeah definitely the safest thing to, to do is abandon all qualifying um, and just have the tournament just abandon all qualifying. I mean, let's be honest. It's it's the last thirty-two team World Cup, isn't it? This one in Qatar, and I think yeah, it goes up in size from the next then, one. Then it goes to one hundred and thirty-two. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and if Arsene Wenger has his way, we'll have one every week. <laughs> yeah, I was going to come on to that before we move <laughs> off. Before we move off this international trend, I was going to just touch on that, but I think. Um, the 32 teams qualify for the World Cup. If we'd sat down before a single qualifier had been played with the numbers from each continent, the three of us, a pen and a piece of paper, I think we could have probably guessed at least 26, 27 of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I, I think just one, one comment on, on, on the travel element, maybe before we move on to perhaps more of the, the, the sort of tournament side of it, is in a weird sort of way, the fact that it is the Qatar one from a fan's perspective as well might I suspect it would have been probably one of the lowest attended World Cups um, because I don't think you'd get you might still get full stadiums and people travelling to go to the games but I don't think you'd have you would have got even in normal times as many people just going for the experience of being there yeah. because of yeah. where it is so in a way that might and because because it's not as though you can go and sit in the local square and get absolutely hammered, is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think indeed. they frown on that sort of stuff. Indeed, indeed. Unless you have a particular addiction to Ribena, um, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be. Yeah, you're not going in in four. Dan, Dan, Ibiza. this is this is the World Cup for you, mate. <laughs> but the you know, in, in, this into evidence. <laughs> Um, you know, in, in, in ridiculous heat as well, you know. So I, I know it's in the winter to allay that, but it's still going to be warm, right? So, yeah. you know, that might, in a, in a weird kind of way, be, be one of the, the, the possibly only advantages 
you know, to hosting it where it is that actually it, it's the location in itself discourages people to a certain degree, I think, from, from travelling. Speaking of bigots, um, <laughs> we had problems again on Friday night. Oh, was it Thursday night? It, it, was, it was Thursday night, Thursday night in Hungary. I mean, awful scenes, weren't they, frankly? Let's, let's not beat about the bush. If that was... Uh, it, Gareth Southgate was right in his press conference before the game last week to, to I think, be really careful about criticising Hungary too much and to talk about the fact that we still need to get our, our, home, our own house in order. Um, listeners won't know necessarily, but I went to the final at Wembley um, a few weeks ago for the Euros, and obviously there were some scenes there that were not, uh, you know, did not reflect well on the football supporting public in this country. And it's right that Gareth Southgate made that point last week when he was asked about it. But let's not be by the bush. If the scenes that we saw on Thursday night had happened at Wembley in the European Championship final, we'd be talking now about England being banned from competitions, wouldn't we? Um, if there were missiles being thrown in that number of players uh, and the governing bodies are running scared again I don't want to get political but they're running scared of Victor Orban that's what's happening uh, now we can pretend that's not the case but that's what's happening that's why when uh, the Germans wanted to protest against the, the um, repeals of protections for LGBT people in Hungary during the European Championships by lighting the stadium in, I forget whether it was Berlin or Munich, I think it was Munich, up in the rainbow flag, UEFA said, oh, you can't do that. It's politics, it's bringing politics into football. What was letting Victor Orban have full stadiums when everyone else was still on half attendances? Was that not politics? Because it looked to me like letting a European strongman, you know, show that he was a European strongman. It's the equivalent of letting... Mussolini, um, you know, inspect the players in 1938 in the World Cup in Italy. It was, it was 1934, one of the 30s World Cups. It, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And um, I think the England players dealt very well with it on the night. Uh, I think the moment when, when Raheem Sterling scored and was, was being pelted with objects and the England players made almost a visible ring around him, to protect him, they uh, cover themselves, as this England group have done on on issues sort of associated to, but not directly from the game in the last couple of years. They cover themselves in glory again, and uh, it's time the governing bodies just started to hit Hungary with some proper punishments. It's a shame because I feel sorry for the Hungary team. They had a fantastic Euros. They were a real uh, great story. Prom, yeah, you know played their hearts out in a tough group I thought they played well for the first half the other night before England really sort of took control of the game um, but you just can't allow that sort of behaviour No, it's, it's crazy that in this day and age we are talking about the way, you know, the things you described then, which is, you know, if anything even a kind description of it, you know, it was it, like you say, it was genuinely awful and you know, the fact that we're coming back, it's like something from a, a relic of a you know, when people talk about the bad old days of football, you know, we're supposed to be in the good days now, and yet we're still talking about, you know, players getting, uh, you know, things thrown at them, um, and in some cases, quite clearly for, you know, things like, the, you know, in, in a prejudiced manner um, for the, for the colour of their skin. Um, but having having something thrown at you for any reason on a football pitch is not acceptable. But particularly when it's, uh, you know, looks to be racially motivated, as you know, I think we, you know, those some of those scenes were. So. I, 
we've, we've talked a lot about the lack of backbone in footballing authorities and, and unfortunately they seem to uh, have, have, have dislocated it um, in this instance as well we can hope, only hope that they they do put some proper punishment in there um, I mean what I would say is Hungary are not a powerhouse in a footballing perspective or they were in the 50s well they're not anymore yeah. so you think that you know usually that's when, when FIFA perhaps comes out with the more lenient uh, you know sort of punishments when it's a you know, a country they don't want to necessarily upset too much, but I, I don't really understand why they're, you know, leaving the politics aside, you know, that like Hungary wouldn't be one of those teams if they didn't make the World Cup next year, you know, no one would particularly be that fussed. Yeah, um, Coca Cola on, on pulling out of the World Cup because Hungary haven't qualified, have they? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> like, like let's, let's be frank about it. it yeah. It's the politics, that's why they've not come down harder and, and more quickly. Um, and as usual, you know, UEFA put out some mealy mouth statement, and you just think it's completely inadequate to address what went on. Yeah, indeed. always, always and forever. Um, just, just quickly about about the football. I uh, thought England played really well on Thursday. wasn't wasn't so convincing against Andorra, but it's very difficult to motivate yourself to play. Quite frankly, jabronis. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought England did play well on Thursday. I thought they rose to the challenge well, especially in that second half. I almost think the worse the crowd got, the more in, the better England played, the more motivated they looked. Um, I, I think we also have to acknowledge that England are a good football team now. I know that's difficult to get your head around. Um, but they made the semi-finals of the last World Cup, went out in extra time to Croatia. They lost in the final of the European Championship on penalties. Okay, in probably both those games, in the end, the right team won. But England are right there on the cusp of being winners at international level. They're really close. They will go into the World Cup as one of the three or four favourites. Not just because the British public have been down the bookies and piled on, but legitimately based on their performances in the last four years. They look a mature team to me. They look like a team that's still growing. They've got a lot of young players, but they're also going to go into that World Cup with a lot of players at that right age for winning World Cups, the likes of Maguire and Stones and Kane and Sterling, um, key players who will be kind of mature, experienced campaigners on the international stage by the time that tournament comes around. And then it doesn't hurt that you've got Bakayo Saka again um, showing his promise last night, that you've got uh, the likes of Phil Foden and uh, Jadon Sancho who are still coming through Mason Greenwood who's had a great start to the season for United we we mentioned him last week so you know this England team is for real and uh, to go to a, a difficult place in Hungary especially in those circumstances and swap them aside in the end was very impressive yeah well we talked about that and the Poland game being two of the tougher games of yeah. the, or the toughest you know the, the yeah. away fixtures being the toughest two games that we'll play in the group and you know 4-0 on that one okay 4-0 at home with a let's face it the the, the alternate 11 um, but ultimately on paper two very comfortable wins and then you know we'll see what happens against um, you know Poland tomorrow but it, it is tomorrow night isn't it or Wednesday Wednesday I Wednesday think. night yeah so we'll, we'll you know we'll see what happens but I think it's what is it five, five from five now um, and yeah they just look yeah incredibly confident but as you say right, rightly so you know they they, they are considered a very good team on, on merit, not just because of, you know, sort of top-thumping England fans getting excited, as we always do. They are, you know, their record now speaks for itself. Um, it, and they will it really does. They go in as one of the favourites. 
And, and the, the the thing that's been in the papers this morning that was kind of the story out of last night, and I, we've talked about it on this podcast, I think the last two weeks, is Jesse Lingard, right? Because mm. he, he didn't go in the summer after a really good loan spell at West Ham. He, he just missed the squad. Um, and then he comes out last night and scores a couple of goals, plays really positively back in the squad, playing well, doesn't look like he's sulking about the fact he was left out. But he isn't going to get the game time at Manchester United, and Southgate's always been really clear that that factors heavily in his in his thinking. Um, so I th- I think that was one of the stories that came out of last night. England have got a lot of depth now. Jesse Lingard has never let England down when he's played for him, but can he get enough club games to keep himself in the picture? That's yeah, the, that's the question, isn't it? And we was expect I was half expecting him to to move uh, on on the window, considering United signed Ronaldo. Not a signing they particularly needed, I didn't think, but I understand why they signed him. You, you sign players like that if you can. Uh, but yeah, I thought Lingard would would kind of move over to to West Ham, and I was surprised that he didn't. But it's not doing his England form or uh, or prospects any uh, disservice at the moment. No, and I think you know if he can get another another loan spell, whether it's to West Ham or anywhere in in, in January, you'd think you know, and if he performs as he did in in the one. You know, this year at West Ham, then he'll again be part of that conversation for the uh, you know for the squad that goes to Qatar. You'd have thought. Yeah, you would you would think so. Um, one one thing that you don't often catch me talking about is an article that I've read, uh, and I was reading an article not so long ago about match of the day being a, a dinosaur and a relic and not really relevant anymore. I, I must admit, I, I don't tend to find myself watching match of the day too much. Unless Liverpool have A, won, and B, uh, it's an early or late kick-off, you know, a, a game that I've not had a chance to, to get back to. I was just wondering, does Match of the Day still figure in, in your kind of Saturday nights? So, not, not necessarily on a Saturday night, but I do generally watch it because I, I very rarely am able to watch a lot of the live games. I might be able to catch one. Um and obviously now at the moment we've reverted back to type where not every game is on TV as well um, so I probably didn't watch it as much during lockdown because we didn't really need to because there was nothing else to do and football was on constantly so <laughs> it sort of rendered it a bit obsolete for you know a year or so but but prior to that and, and now that you know sort of normal services is, is just about being resumed um, I, I've kind of gone back to you know sort of watching it whether it's a Sunday you know sometimes I'll watch Saturdays on a Sunday morning or afternoon or whatever but over the course of Saturday, Sunday and maybe Monday I will usually watch some combination of, of match of the day or match of the day too depending on sort of who's played when and you know and obviously particularly if, if, if United have been on uh, and won <laughs> um, as well so I would say I, I do still watch it now whether I watch it because it's match of the day or because it's simply uh, an, an accessible highlights package that's on the BBC that I can just you know sort of put on very easily is, is another thing altogether because I you know I, I tend to only really watch the analysis of maybe United's game and if there's been another big game or a game with a particular incident in I'll I'll sit and listen to uh, you know what what sort of Wrighty and, and Shearer and Danny Murphy and whoever have, have got to say as much as it might pain me but but the rest of the time when it when it's just sort of you know. Uh, Palace v Newcastle or whatever I, you know it, it's very much a case of I'll have a quick look at the goals or whatever and I, I don't sit there to, to hear Jermaine Genesis' views on you know whether the defence played well or not because quite frankly life is too short um, but, I, but, but to, <laughs> you know 
um, arguably to listen to him talk about anything, but uh, particularly um, Crystal Palace's defence. But I, but to answer you know to answer your original question, I, I, it, it is now. That also might be because I'm an outdated relic, Dan. You know, so, <laughs> um, you know there is maybe a bigger question of whether you know, obviously young, and, and we can't probably speak for them, but whether younger, you know, millennial Gen Z audiences, I suspect the viewership of Match of the Day is is firmly over thir- over 35. For you know, I, I imagine the average age is is probably someone in like their early 40s or something like that. Um, I, I don't know if there's been any if, if, if we can sort of confirm that or not but that that's what I would suspect I doubt it's 20 year olds who are tuning in to watch it and I think that's suspect that's probably the gist of what the maybe the article you've read was, was sort of trying to say yeah and I'm I'm obviously not a relic in the same way that Khan is because <laughs> I very I very rarely find myself watching Match of the Day these days Um in fact, I'd say the last couple of times I've watched Match of the Day is I've caught the end of the Sunday morning repeat when I was waiting for more. Uh, rather than actually put Match of the Day on, I've turned the tally on thinking, oh, Andrew Moore's on in 15 minutes and it's the end of Match of the Day. Um, and and he, knows, he still knows more, knows more than Danny Murphy, though. <laughs> yeah, he could, he could probably dissect the Crystal Palace defending better than Danny Murphy. <laughs> I, I, I think... Um, I think the thing that's changed it for me is just access to the goals now. Like the one thing that match day, and it was always about more than just the goals. And, and back in the day when they only showed three games in full and then just ran through the, you know, not in full, in, in bulk, and then ran through the goals of the other games, it's changed a bit over the years, obviously, but. Um, the goals have always been the thing that really attract people to match of the day, the opportunity to see the goals that have been scored that day. And now I can see them on Twitter, I can see them on the Sky Sports app, I can see them pretty much anywhere within an hour of the game. Um, and so that thing of waiting on the Saturday night to see the goal that you've heard described on Five Live or on, on Soccer Saturday in the middle of the afternoon, uh, to see that brilliant goal that yeah, in the back in the day, Thierry Henry had scored, or Mark Viduka had scored. He used to score some screamers in the the Eboa goals. If you go back even further than that, that feeling isn't there anymore um, because the goals are already so easily accessible and out for people to see. I think the other thing that's changed it for me is there's so much analysis now. If you want analysis, there are so many places to go and get it. Analysis of the games. Um, a really detailed analysis of the games actually if you really want to dive into tactical breakdowns um, of, of matches that you see on the tally or, or elsewhere these days there are so many, I mean Michael Cox on The Athletic I know people think we're an Athletic sponsored podcast but subsidiary. Um, yeah, Michael Cox on The Athletic does a frankly phenomenal job um, and in a level of depth and detail that probably the average casual fan might find a bit boring, but if you are a football nut who wants to get into that level of detail, you're not going to get that from Danny Murphy and Jermaine Jennings and Ian Wright with the best will in the world. Um, you know, Wright is close to my heart, and as someone with Crew Alexander affiliation, so is Danny Murphy. But you're not going to get that level of expertise from them. So, the two things that Match of the Day used to be able to give you, which was the first sight of the goals, it's not that anymore. And the only place where you could get a sort of bit of detail analysis 
well actually it doesn't even scratch the surface compared to what you can get elsewhere now uh, in that regard so I think the two things that made Match of the Day unique have kind of gone I tend to still watch it on the first weekend of the season and I did this year um, there's something about that first Saturday night of the season and hearing the Match of the Day music and seeing the new uh, opening credits that I, that I quite enjoy but probably after that first day of the season and maybe Boxing Day other than those two you can probably count the number of times a season I watch it on, on one hand I'm much, much like that myself it's, it's not very often I watch it it's, I've got to have been at the match and not had access to highlights or snippets to, to, to want to watch it I mean, don't get me wrong I, I like Gary Lineker and I, I normally think Match of the Day is an easy watch and then it gets an, we get to the analysts and it's like yeah okay I don't really care what Jermaine Jennings thinks about Liverpool's midfield yeah, I think that's part of it. I think the quality, you know, uh, Alan Hansen was ahead of his time when he started on Match of the Day, wasn't he, back in the early 90s. Um, and he was kind of your go-to analyst. He was the Gary Neville of his day, right? The guy who you thought when he speaks and he starts talking about the tactical elements of the game, you listen. Um, but again, Danny Murphy, Jermaine Jennis, Ian Wright... Even Alan Shearer, who I do think is better than when he started on Match of the Day, he does far less. He crossed it in the, in the back of the net. He does far less of that now. Um, but again, these aren't real detailed tactical analysis people. Uh, and they don't have that kind of charisma and force of opinion that Alan Hansen had that you, you don't win anything with kids type stuff. They, they just don't have that. And so... He, if you're watching Match of the Day for the analysis now, you're not getting that, that real tip-top level, I don't think. I think the best analysts on TV work on other stations. And I know we've said we'll do a pundit special at some point, but it, for me, it's Gary Neville, it's Roy Keane, it's Graeme Souness. They are, the, they are the sort of gold standard, really. And, yeah, Match of the Day just doesn't match up to that. Graeme Souness, as long as your name's not Paul Pogba. <laughs> he said something nice about him last weekend, Dan. The the last weekend of the uh, you know when when we had Premier League games, he he said something. He said he looks a different player this season. So maybe the soonest Pogba love affair is back on. <laughs> Can't have cut you off a few times there. Sorry, was there anything you wanted to say? Oh no, no, that, that absolutely fine, Dan. Um, no, no, it's all good. I think you know Paul makes some very fair points there, and you know I, I, I do feel like I'm I am in a sort of minority of people that, that still watch it, and I but I also watch it recognizing everything that, that that Paul said. You know, like it's it's very much for me. It's just an easy thing I can whack on that has you know all all the the games and the goals, and I can just sort of flick through it, and it might be on in the background most of the time, and I'll. I'll sort of turn round when a goal's gone in or whatever and then remember to fast forward as soon as I see Danny Murphy's face so it's it, you know it, it, it has its uses in that sense but yeah you, you do perhaps wonder does it have you know will it still be around in in five years or ten years you know I, I, I don't know for all you know for all the reasons that, that Paul has said and you know I think again I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, that younger viewers are probably not watching it at all because they, they're able to see everything on on social media and other 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 sports apps um, that have the content that they need. I think one one thing that I wanted to get to get your thoughts on, um, gents, is safe standing. That appears as though there has been significant steps being taken, and, and everyone always comes to me about this when you when, when we're talking like, as a Liverpool fan. How how do you feel about it? And um, to be honest with you, 
I, I, I don't think that standing was ever the issue. I think that it was a contributing factor to, to Hillsborough, which is nothing to do with me. I didn't lose anyone that day. You know, it, it's nothing to do with me. But I'm always of the opinion that we give away to the, the families. Now we have had got we have got a safe standing area in the cop. I've seen it. It didn't look like it was particularly full against Athletic Bilbao, but you know that th- there were people in it. I'm not so sure it's making a big difference to the atmosphere either. But um, people want safe standing back. Um, we've got it for, for, for my money. If the Hillsborough families are okay with it, then I'm okay with it too. But I didn't ever think it was a particularly a big issue myself. The issue of standing. Um, so I was just wondering what, what you two gents thought of the return of safe standing which are, I believe is slated for pr- pretty soon I believe yeah I I have mixed views on it Dan if I'm honest um, I'm not one of these people who bemoans the fact that the atmosphere at football grounds is a bit more sanitised now than it was you know even when I first started going to football grounds in the early 90s mid 90s um you know, I don't go to football to shout vile abuse at the people in the opposite, you know, opposite end of the ground. Uh, that's not really why I'm there. But I, I do get the, the point that atmospheres used to be a bit more raucous. Um, my concerns with safe standing are: a, can you keep um, a reasonable sort of level of control of those safe standing areas because the thing about uh, the seated areas is they're very safe. You can have a keep, you can easily keep control of them. I think can can we make safe standing safe? And when I say safe, I agree with you, Danny. It, it, the reason the Hillsborough happened was only in part due to uh, the fact it was terracing. Uh, let, let's talk about the fences that were up in front of football fans. Let's talk about the. Um, failures of the policing. Let's talk about all the factors rather than just saying it was because there was terracing, although the terracing was crumbling at Sheffield Wednesday and why the ground was ever picked for the game. You know, you could go on about that on a, a whole different podcast. Um, but I think it's not safe from the perspective of is it going to cause a crush, it's safe from the perspective of can you control behaviour as easily in that environment as you can in a seated environment. Now hopefully with the closed circuit television we have an all football grounds now we can and so that solves that problem. The other question that, that would be for me is I'm not paying 35, 40 quid to stand up. So are we going to adjust the pricing to reflect the you know, standing tickets cannot surely be worth forty quid. Surely. Yeah, you're, you're very confident. You're very confident on that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's a fair. It's a fair point because ultimately, the difference now is, in my understanding anyway, that it's still one person to one seat, right, within the safe standing. It's not like previously where they could get more people in to the same area. Therefore, it didn't matter if you were charging them a bit less because there was more volume of people but my understanding is now it's still sort of you're sat in front of one of those sort of riser seats so presumably from a capacity perspective you don't get an extra 5,000 people in or whatever because it's a safe I mean maybe I'm wrong Um, Mm. but but, but if not then obviously then from a club's perspective you're almost then giving up you know if you were to reduce the price you would then essentially be, be losing out on a bit of match day revenue now now to the bigger clubs that isn't as big a thing as it used to be maybe post covid now that everyone's got a bit of a shortfall perhaps but 
in in normal times um, it wasn't much of an issue but obviously a lot of clubs do very much depend on uh, match day revenue and you know we've seen that through covid um, so that then becomes a bit of a dilemma as well um, as you know is, yeah. is having you know a potentially bit better atmosphere although tbc i think you know we, we don't know um you know that's the, the the sort of theory behind it uh, is that worth um you know potentially you know lower you know lower gate receipts or you know income um I'm, I'm not sure i haven't seen anything around whether that's been proposed um that there will you know be, be cheaper tickets and so on um because isn't isn't part of the idea that they want you know do they want to try and attract sort of like young you know younger more vociferous fans into these areas rather than you know sort of all all, all the old boys who were just there sort of eating a you know eating, eating a pie and falling asleep um is is that you know is that the sort of the idea behind it i i'm i i do not know eating a pie and falling asleep sounds like a good saturday afternoon <laughs> <laughs> particularly if the alternative is staying awake and watching arsenal well indeed, indeed. <laughs> um so yeah, I don't, I don't, that that that's that's sort of my yeah my sort of un- understanding of it. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how easy it is to, to sort of do that um, in terms of how you you know select the sort of almost profile of people that sit. I presume people have to apply for it, and is it sort of season ticket only who can say yes? I I want to you know go in the standing area. Um, I'm not quite sure how that's all being worked out, and whether that varies from club to club, whether the specific stipulations of, of who can go in those areas I, I, I don't know yeah it's it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out because it's something that a lot of people have been squawking about for a while um, so I, I'm kind of I, I, I'm interested to see how it goes and certainly it deserves every opportunity and if, if it doesn't work if there's a an uptick in incidents then we just we just scrap it again yeah i think like like everything you know it, it's it's worth a, a controlled sort of trial mm-hmm. to see what what happens i suspect that what paul's kind of said is probably going to be right that it's not a it's not a silver bullet in terms of all of a sudden turning stadiums into rocking singing raucous you know like they would might have been in you know the 80s or whatever i i, I think football sort of moved on to the degree where in, in most run-of-the-mill league games, I don't think you'll see that. You may, maybe in the really big games you might, but then in the really big games you sort of suddenly get that already anyway. So I, I don't know if it will have, if that is the sort of you know desired effect of it. I, I don't know if it will just magically up the decibel uh, rating you know in every stadium because they have a, a sort of a, a standing area. I'm I'm I'm, I'm not I'm remain to be convinced on that one, but but who knows. The, the other, the other thing that I would say, Dan, very, very quickly, a, a lot of this um, push for safe standing comes from the experience in Germany. Now, I know, I know a lot of people who talk glowingly about their experiences of football in Germany. I've been twice to games in, in the Bundesliga and didn't enjoy either of them. The experience um, in both cases was not pleasant, uh, and I wouldn't like English football to end up like that. And I won't go into detail as the, the, the circumstances, but both games, I saw what I would consider to be hooligan behaviour, and and not isolated pockets of it, large scale involvement in it. I think the, um, the I remember you telling me about that. Um, wasn't it involving eighteen sixty Munich? Uh, one was in, was it Hertha Berlin? 
so, so one was her to Berlin. That was that was what I was going to say. Yeah, one was her to Berlin, and I know they have a bit of a reputation even among German clubs. Uh, one was her to Berlin, uh, and the other was uh, Saint Pauli. Ah, yes, that was at Saint Pauli, if I remember. Not the uh, not the hipsters' darlings, Paul. Surely, yeah, surely they, they can do no wrong. The hipsters' darlings, yeah. I didn't <laughs> see many darlings when I was there, Con. I saw some 1980s style hooliganism. With, with, with that being said, have we we kind of covered quite a, a, a broad range of topics this week. Not actually much involving a, a, a football entering a net. Is there anything else that you that you kind of want to bring up, gents, or are we uh, are we good? Certainly, certainly, Arsenal are immune from kicking the ball into the net at the moment. Well, well, you talk about there wasn't much talk about kicking it into the net, Danny. It'd be hard to be because not only obviously the Premier League doesn't play international weekends, the Championship doesn't play international weekends. I think about only four games survived international call-ups from League One. There were almost no League One games. Apparently, everyone in League One has got at least three international players these days. So, um, I was staggered when I looked at the fixture list on Saturday morning to see how few games there were in the third tier. Uh, I don't know if that's a reflection of just how global football is now and the fact that you know players from smaller countries are coming in and playing in our league. I don't know if it's a reflection on the fact that there's some bigger clubs in League One at the moment. We've talked about that on other podcasts. But there was there was almost no football in League One last weekend. Um, it was basically just League Two. Yeah, I, I think it's too much international football. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I would, would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> But no, I mean, I think we, we sort of touched on it earlier, really. But, you know, if you look, you know, going back to the what is the point of qualifying? I mean, so many one sided results, you know, and, and so many sort of high, you know, high scoring games where you just it, it does lead you to question. Like, like you said, Paul, you know, we could probably pick 26 of the 32 teams or whatever that will be in in this, uh, you know, in this World Cup. And you do just sort of wonder when you see. You know, Poland beat San Marino seven-one, and, and whatever. It's just, yeah. What, why? Why are these games happening? <laughs> what do we? What do we learn? What do they prove? And I think you know, before we finish, that is one of the areas where we have to say, and I think we have said that the Nations League has been a success. Mm, it has because the teams are, are brigaded in such a way that they play against teams of reasonably similar level. So you don't get England Andorra, you know, England Denmark, England Spain, England Belgium. Okay, they're games people might be interested in watching. Um, and I think it is a question that, that they still have to grapple with. I'm still of a view that there's a way of doing kind of pre-qualifiers before you then bring the you know the top eight, top ten seeds into that, however you want to do it. Um, because, again, I... I the theory was always that smaller countries learn from playing against better opposition, but in the cases of San Marino and Andorra, it, like, they're never going to learn. The problem is they're tiny countries with tiny populations and tiny groups of people to draw from. The idea that the San Marino players learn by getting hammered by Poland, well, of course they don't. What, what nonsense. No, well, this is it. When, when you've only got a population of like 50,000 people, it's not like, oh, yes, we'll start a new development programme. Where we'll exactly. You know, the guys are part-time, you know, like... They, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, he's delivering bread tomorrow. He, you know, <laughs> he isn't learning anything about delivering bread from getting, you know, Lewandowski scoring eight past him or whatever. <laughs> you know, it just yeah. it, it just isn't helping anybody. But there we are again, Dan. Probably another topic for another day. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's um, let's just let football managers decide who qualifies for the World Cup. Would be my 
uh, honourable suggestion. Um, I think the last time I played a football manager game, though, Ukraine won the 2022 World Cup, so maybe let's not do that. <laughs> well, you never know. Ukraine did look quite handy in the Euros in, 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 in places. Um, with, with that being said, I think we're at the end of our uh, weekly journey now. Um, one thing I'd like to, to draw to everyone's attention is we're actually using new recording software tonight. Um, so if you can let us know what you think of that, whether it's better or worse, it seems to me like it's a, it's a bit of an easier solution for us. Uh, we just need to know whether the proof of that is in the pudding. Um, so remember you can catch us on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. I've not mentioned Google Podcasts once and I got set up about a year ago. So and I've got to remember five. That's not going to end very well. Um, so, Paul, Carl, thank you for your time. No worries, Tim. Cheers. And we'll catch you all after a while. <laughs>